0: Welcome, I'm Alexander. I'm Simon. And I'm Tony. We are still very much knee-deep in tech, the podcast where we cover the latest from the IT industry with a specific focus on Microsoft and getting actual value out of technology. There has been a lot of stuff happening since last time we, we recorded. And what are we going to be looking at today? We're going to be looking at build announcements. There's been a lot of stuff coming out of build. We will be talking about a bit about um, Swedish companies and cyber attacks, and then we have a crap ton of updates. So let's dive straight into Microsoft Build. Did any of you guys get to watch any of the episodes?
1: Did you have to ask that? <laughs> no, I, I actually had had it planned, but I think I think I made a mistake that I'm telling everyone not to do, and that was I didn't set aside time to actually watch it. So I didn't even have it in my calendar. Uh, So therefore I had things planned most of the time. Uh, So I haven't actually been able to see one single episode nor the keynote.
2: Yeah, so I did actually have a quick look at the session catalog prior to the event itself. And I didn't really see... Uh, As per usual, anything that really hit uh, my area of interest and competence, um, which uh, it's, I suppose, expected since build is mostly developer-focused still. Uh, There was a few things that I found on Twitter during this week and also uh, earlier this morning just to try to find the interesting bits that might actually um, be something for me as well. But we'll get into that in a minute. And I think that this is a very good point
0: that you made, Simon, that we didn't set aside time. In my case, I was uh, training, so I, I could not set aside time. But it also drives home the point of how do you view an online event like this? Because if you do not set aside time, you are at best going to be looking at it with one eye, basically, while you're working. And at worst, you're going to realize that, oops, you kind of forgot about it. And you do not forget about, or let me rephrase that, you shouldn't forget about an in-person conference that you've paid thousands of dollars for. So it, it, it comes down to, I'm not paying for this. What kind of expectations can I have? And what kind of expectations can they have on me as an attendee, despite the fact that I th- I saw a number of 20,000 people having um, signed up
2: for it. Okay. Also, there's a time difference for us.
1: Yeah, but I think they... Th- weren't they running it 48 hours straight? They, they did have a lot of sessions that were aimed towards the European time zones. So everything wasn't delivered in the US time zones.
0: No, that's true. And they also had... Um, Retakes, so to speak. They they did a session yep. multiple times to cater to the different um, time zones.
1: And I think they had, think they had way more than twenty thousand. I think they may have had twenty thousand people signing up prior to the event, but I saw numbers that were over like close to a hundred thousand unique viewers total. Wow, that's pretty impressive. Yeah, and I, I think it was Scott Hanselman that shared that, and and that the average time these people were following build were like a few hours. So from, from that point of view it's a success. Because Microsoft have been able to reach more people than they usually reach with build and or ignite.
0: And that I think is a huge point. The ability to reach more people. Because at the end of the day that's what this is all about. Trying to figure out how to do so with um, remain we, while still keeping a good quality and seeing what you can do more than just a normal online conference. That's that's a different story, but I'm, I'm pretty sure that we're going to see that going forward.
2: What was your guys' uh, key takeaways that you have read about um, after the fact? I think
1: there are a lot of things. I, from my my point of view, I like the um, the push towards. Reunion, uh, so the product reunion where we'll see the APIs from Win32 apps and Universal Windows Platform apps growing together and becoming one API set and where they will be disconnecting those APIs from Windows. And just prior to us starting the recording, I think it was Alexander who said that it's it's more on, they're moving towards a more Linux-style operating system and Linux-style apps. And it, Which makes total sense, because that, that's what they are claiming all the time, that Windows is only the platform. And it's up to you to choose whichever platform you will pick, but there should be an obvious upside of choosing a Microsoft operating system over any other operating system. But you necessarily don't have to do that.
2: Okay, so in that case, you're mostly thinking about the new Windows Package Manager, I suppose, and also the Windows Subsystem for Linux, right?
1: Yeah, uh, those two as well. The Package Manager is absolutely interesting. And I haven't looked into the security aspects of that, but that would be my the number one reason why I would consider using it. If that could be some kind of quality and security indicator that if I download anything from here, that's something that's secure and validated by Microsoft. I'm guessing that there will be options to for others to add content there, but I, I would love for it to be like the Microsoft Store, but uh, of course being based on, on, on um,
0: PowerShell instead. I think you're overthinking it a bit uh, because there, there's already a package manager for Windows you might not know it, but it's called Chocolatey. Yeah, but that's not by Microsoft. Nope, it's not by Microsoft at all. And, and this is by Microsoft, yes. So that's geared either to the enthusiast crowd or the enterprise crowd, because there are a few different versions of Chocolatey. But I jump on this from a purely uh, home PC viewpoint. Just imagine the number of hours I've spent setting this behemoth up and all the, the work that I've, I've put into just installing and configuring all the bits of software to get my video setup going. And that's just one aspect of all the things that I do on my machine. Imagine having all that in a package manager. I have a complete script that takes a raw bare bones Windows installed to exactly the way that I want my machine configured in no time flat. How exceptionally cool
1: isn't that? Just a reality check. That's what I do for a living.
0: Because you do it from an enterprise perspective. You cannot do this.
1: But 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 are you honestly seeing home users do, going through all of that hassle to get an up, up and running? Yeah, it, you may not be an enterprise user, but you're still a power user. It wouldn't be that hard for you to set up Autopilot, Microsoft Intune, do everything like that. And it would like basically take you the same amount of time.
0: No, I cannot disagree more. Uh, because he, it, it's like either you do something in PowerShell or you learn C++. That's the two different <laughs> choices you just gave me. I'm sure Intune can do this, and I'm sure Intune is, is exceptional at it. But comparing this to ju- just a script with a package manager, a whole different ballgame. And to answer your question, no, I don't think that my mother, I'm sorry, mom, but you always get used as a bad example. I am pretty sure that she will not be using a package manager, but I will be using a package manager to make sure that their machines are quickly uh, resettable, so to speak. So from a power user perspective, it is a a godsend. From a normal user perspective, it's probably going to be a big, huge meh.
1: Yeah, and I think that that's we'll we'll see how it's going to be used for home users. And to add to that, I've been using Chocolatey with Intune for quite a while because that oh, was you a have? very yeah, of course. For interesting three years, four years, because you deploy, you can deploy PowerShell scripts and therefore inject the latest version of an app. Works brilliantly, no problem whatsoever. So, so I'm fully aware, and that's why I feel that the most important part is that it's owned by Microsoft, mm. and I hope that they will curate content inside of it. True. Sure. But let's move on to subsystem for Linux.
2: Yep, that was actually the big one for me this time around. Uh, I know I've read about it already back in March or something like that, where they were discussing this, but it's been a lot more in focus during the build week uh, this week. Yeah. So I suppose the biggest news with the uh, VSL 2.0 is probably the native kernel support which Microsoft has built. So this means you get huge performance improvements, you get much more compatibility. You can for example now install GUI versions of Linux. Um, You get uh, GPU support with CUDA and DirectX 12 if I remember correctly. And also you can migrate your old 1.0 to 2.0 in a pretty simple way. So I think those are the major three improvements in VSL 2. And I've already heard uh, from actual developers that they are very much interested in this feature and want to use it pretty much straight away. And it's coming in Windows 2004, which is pretty much out by now.
1: Yeah, and I think that's because this is a discussion I've been having with both customers and internally since... I would say that close to half of my company runs Linux on their physical machines various versions of it uh, but we are a very Linux heavy company from a and that's that's due to the security aspects of course and I'm now with these new announcements very interested in hearing from people that have considered like been choosing to run Linux over running Windows with Windows subsystem for Linux due to some limitations of it. And I do see that my my colleagues that run Arch Linux or Kali or something like that, they probably won't change. But once they're running like Ubuntu, Red Hat, SUSE, the more like regular enterprise distributions, I, I would be really interested in hearing about the The limitations they as developers see in this. Because it would be so much easier to just do exactly what Alexander just proposed for his home computer. Being able to get a Linux-focused developer or system administrator up and running with the tools we use to provision or um, deploy Windows. And there will, of course, be a number of security aspects. That's something I'm I will be looking into as well. How can you secure Windows subsystem for Linux running on Windows. What do you need to consider there? But but I think it's a great addition, and I have been using it from time to time, like uh, SSH. As oh, the new
2: one or the old one?
1: The old one.
0: Really interesting.
1: So one thing that I'm actually not fully aware of, does this, is this included in Windows Server? I don't think so. And that, then you could, wouldn't that be useful? Well, I suppose from a container
2: perspective, that should be excellent. Yeah.
1: And also, I would be very interested in knowing if you can do this, could you publish the Linux applications through WVD if they're running on Windows?
2: Well, WVD is still Windows 10 based, right? So yeah. I suppose Windows subsist- uh, all the Linux subsystems subsist-
1: should be there. Should be. I'm... I need to I, ha- out. I haven't
2: looked yeah I haven't looked into that at all but yeah in- interesting question
1: yeah because I've been or interacting with um, a linchpin based company called thinlink which you may have been working with as well which do exactly that they publish linux uh, applications uh, like a terminal server and they publish it
0: Let's just say that I've had my dealings with thinlink many 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 years ago and it is still not a good idea <laughs>
1: Anyways, going back to what I was supposed to say before Alexander started to uh, share his mind, they have made that into a business proposition and they are one of the very few companies that does that. So if you were able to run Windows Subsystem on Linux, running on Windows to help the session and publish Linux applications over WVD, that would be very interesting in a very, very powerful and fairly unique
0: combination. The funny thing is, I'm, I'm going to ask you the exact same thing that I'm asking most of the proponents for, for Thinlink exactly. Why? Show me one piece of software that is so important on Linux that you need to jump through all these hoops to get it on a
1: Windows desktop. I'm not fully aware of that, but I've been working with organizations where this have been an absolute necessity. A what now? Necessity,
0: Necessity.
1: Yeah, same thing.
0: I think we need to put in a, a segment on, on spelling because I, I know for a fact that I do these weird stuff. Exactly, weird things as well. But please do go
1: on. Yeah, and, and I think that going back to what I just said about security and manageability, think of it the other way around. How much hassle would it be to deploy Linux workstations for? 10% of an organization and keep on maintaining them. Yeah, with the management tools and everything else as well. Compared, and that would be in addition to the same environment running Windows, and compare that to the hassle of integrating something like Thinlink.
0: And that's a good point. And we're not going to be dwelling here anymore because I it's been over 10 years a I that it <laughs> last time.
1: Do, do, yeah, just because you haven't evolved in 10 years it doesn't mean that the product that is a good point, yep. that is a very good point
0: and that's an interesting segue what <laughs> has been developing <laughs> though is something extremely interesting and that is the Synapse Analytics and Synapse Analytics was actually announced at Ignite yep. uh, it was announced by Rohan Kumar who owns everything data and It is a one-stop shop for storing data, wrangling data, i.e. integrating data, analyzing data, and visualizing data. So it's essentially, it's Data Lake, it's Spark, it's some bits of Hive, it is Power BI, it is Azure Data Factory, and all the bits and pieces that you can think of when it comes to all the kinds of machine learning stuff you can ever want. All in one package. You do not leave the Synapse Studio to do all these things. You have the notebooks. You have the whole nine yards inside of Synapse Studio. You could have done all these things with with using the bits and pieces that you have in Azure previously. I'm not going to go ahead and say that it was easy, but you could do it and you could integrate it. I mean, that's how we build stuff in Azure. But now we have everything in the same pane of glass, if you will. It's the same product. And what it also has or will have when we move forward, is the on-demand stuff. We can actually spin up a an Azure Data Warehouse on-demand just to satisfy one specific query. And that is something that we never had before. It is a super interesting proposition, and it's now in public preview. So we can actually get to play with this for the first time in in history. So I'm I'm super excited for Synapse Analytics and I'm I'm very very uh, much looking forward to seeing where they go with it
1: now that they have a public preview and so many more people are using it. Is the main value proposition simplicity and in integrations or does it add any other functions that you previously didn't have access to?
0: Yes, on both questions. It's integrated and yeah. that makes it easier to work with but you also get the whole on-demand stuff, uh, kind of Azure Data Warehouse uh, serverless, if you will, that you did not have access to previously. There are still a lot of things that you cannot do with Synapse that you can do with your own Databricks and Data Lake um, setup. But on the other hand, they've been at this for a long time. Synapse basically just came into being. So we're, we're seeing the first steps of a pretty
2: interesting child coming out. Because to me, that sounds pretty much like, you know the again, Microsoft consolidation umbrella thing that you use just to bring many different kind of products under the same umbrella or the same pane of glass, so to speak. And that's a good point. And the thing to remember is inside
0: of Azure, you have Databricks. And Databricks is a hosted version of Spark which in turn is an open source analytics platform, extremely powerful. With Databricks, it is managed, so you do not have to create your own cluster. You don't need to manage all the ifs and buts that you have with a normal uh, Spark system. But Databricks is not Microsoft. And Microsoft used to have their Azure Data Lake Analytics uh, thing. That was the, the analytics counterpart to the data lake storage. But Azure Data Lake Analytics went away. They deprecated it and pretty much took it out of circulation to a lot of people's confusion. And they went with Databricks instead. I personally think that was a better choice from a um, functionality standpoint, but it is not Microsoft. And I, I thought to myself, this is not going to stand because Microsoft does not control Databricks. And either they buy Databricks, which they have not done, or I think they're going to be starting up something on their own. And that's what I think we're seeing with Synapse, because Microsoft is controlling the entire package with Synapse. It's the same Spark, but it's controlled by Microsoft in in their own
1: I think we'll be getting back to the build announcements. There have been a lot of announcements around Microsoft Edge, both from a security and productivity point of view. We haven't talked about Microsoft Lists or the new Power Toys. And there is probably way more that we don't even understand. So we'll be getting back to build uh, over the coming weeks, I would assume. And hopefully we can also get some of our developer friends to uh, give their view on it.
0: So you're claiming that Swedish companies pay the highest ransom to cyber attackers. Could you say something about that?
1: Yeah, just to clarify that I'm not claiming. Sophos is claiming that, uh, and Sophos is, for the ones who doesn't know, uh, an anti-malware or threat protection company, uh, and they do yearly state of ransomware um, studies. So this time they have interviewed 5000 item managers across the globe, I think it's 26 countries on the state of ransomware and there are apart from Sweden being one, I think it's the second, second most likely country to pay the ransom we also pay the highest ransoms and to put that into perspective, over the globe the average ransom that you are required to pay to get out of a ransomware attack is 7.5 million kroners, so $750,000 or just about. In Sweden, our average ransom that are being paid is 26 million kroners, so $2.6 million. That's the average. And we'll be getting back to some other numbers later on, but the main reason, as Sophos describes it, is Probably due to our high salaries, that's the the, especially the thing that they see as something that drives that. But it's also like the part of like lost income and so on, of course. And after Sweden, Japan is the country that pays the most, and the countries that pay the least are South Africa, um, Czech Republic, and Poland, which. Makes sense. I'm a bit interested in, like, Czech Republic, to be honest, South Africa, perhaps as well. But um, I think this tells us two things. First, it's never cheap to get hit by a ransomware. The other thing is that too few organizations are really prepared for such an attack. And they also see that it's good to take the easy way out. So I have a question for you. If you your company were to get hit by ransomware, what would be what would make most financial sense? To pay the ransom or try to counter the attack? What what do you believe? What would be the most fin- what would make most financial sense?
0: In my view, it would be without a doubt just pay because we do not have the the uh, capabilities, we don't have the muscle to Countered it. Now, it would be different if we were to bring in a third party that are specialists in information warfare,
1: if you will. Yeah, I wonder who you would bring in then.
0: I have no idea. But <laughs> we, we can do it. So I think from a financial standpoint, just swallow your pride
1: and open your wallet. What do you say, Tony? What What would you believe? <clears throat>
2: well, I would probably be on the other side of that fence. Fully dependent, of course, uh, on how your environment is looking and how long it would take to actually do a full restore, for example, and how much I would risk in losing in productivity or data loss or whatever. Uh, So those two will have to be weighed against each other, of course. So if the ransom is 10 million Swedish and it would cost me 15 million to do a restore without paying, so then the payment should probably make more sense. Swallow your pride and just pay up and make sure it doesn't happen again. But I would rather have a very meticulously tested environment to make sure that I can do a full restore of everything without having to pay. But you'd need to have a good understanding on how long that would take and at what success rate that would go. So, I mean, if I haven't tested anything prior to the attack happening, I most likely have to pay. Because it would just take too long to stay offline and try to recover things. So... I would most likely lean towards the uh, restore uh, plan but you know
1: that has to be rigorously tested before the event happens. So what if I tell you that the same report also claims that it's actually twice as twice as expensive to pay the ransom as trying to restore everything. Yeah, I wouldn't be surprised. The the average cost um, for organizations that didn't pay were $732,520 and for the ones who did pay it was $1,448,458. That's an interesting exact number I'd have to say
2: and $20 okay yeah, and 20
1: <laughs> it doesn't state sense though but uh, so and that also puts things into perspective and I think that looking at, and that makes me also very happy that I am able to talk about the, the main incident I was involved in last year with AdTech since they have gone public with it. Their ransom were set to 150 million Swedish kroners. Uh, and they claim that the total cost for them, including loss of revenue and such, uh, were 150 million kroners. But in that, then like let's switch back do you think they they have been secured way better than they were previously? So they've actually gained things, even though it's a, a lot of money and it was an absolute nightmare for them. The amount of money, close to the same, but the other benefits they've gained um, really have given them something which they wouldn't have gained otherwise. And in general, um, it, it also shows that, like, paying is something that my organization always advise against. Because if an organization are paying, and especially if a Swedish organization are paying, the attackers will, of course, focus on Sweden. And it will show them that it's profitable. And it also shows that we either, like you said, Alexander, that we are afraid of taking action against it, or that we don't know how. So we can talk about there are a lot of other very interesting numbers in this report say things like uh, almost 3 quarters of the ransomware attacks are actually resulting in data being encrypted and that f- i think this is the most important part that close to 50% of all organizations have been hit by ransomware worldwide on a large or small scale. Yeah, but still, that's a lot. Yeah. So to summarize that, I would like to give three advice to organizations. Protect your organizations. Invest in cybersecurity before things hit you. Be prepared. Practice for this kind of attack. We do practice a lot for like fire drills or whatever. You should practice for a cyber attack as well. And if you get hit, prevail. Like fight back. Never, ever pay never take the easy route, stand your ground, and if needed, as Alexander said, get help. There are organizations that are experts in doing this, um, and it's like you get into a big crisis. On a happier note, what's been going on with Power BI?
0: On a very much happier note, I'm so happy you said that. No, so we've had the May updates, and the May update... As, as always, it contains a lot of interesting things, but I am going to highlight only a few of them. One is the dataset impact analysis. So whenever I replace a dataset, I will now be shown what reports are using this dataset. So I will know who I will be impacting with this update. It's it's a small thing, but it is, it, it's a great way of making sure that I will be sleeping better at night because I will not... Inadvertently uh, change something for somebody that I did not know used my dataset, for instance. And the other one, I can only say thank you, thank you, thank you to Marco Russo. Uh, Marco is one of the uh, he's one of the Italians, aka the Italian gods. They have made an update, a change to Parbi that is enormous. I cannot overstate this. You've all been at this um, for a long time, and you probably enjoyed Office when Office was uh, changed, um, or I should say localized to Swedish. Do you remember Visual Basic for Applications?
2: Oh, with a very sour taste in my mouth. Yep. And they also uh,
0: actually localized the language of the actual uh, Visual Basic language, which is stupid in extremis. And we've had a bit of a similar thing in Power BI because Power BI will uh, look at your regional settings when it comes to decimal symbol and list separator, which is an issue when you have a language that relies on a specific decimal symbol. So that's why I could not use a Swedish install of Power BI or um, a Swedish install of my Windows machine and just use any copy-paste um, DAX from the internet, because I would probably need to change my my
1: um, comma-separator or my, my decimal symbol. Both me and Tony are now looking sick.
2: Yeah, well, it's it's just because- We feel that, your pain. I've, I've had this issue myself with the Excel. I, was, I mean, even the latest versions of Excel, uh, with the separators uh, uh, differing between languages and regional settings and that kind of BS, I I can't for the life of me believe that we're still having this issue in 2020. It's it's just ridiculous.
0: It is, and as of now, we are not having it in Power BI anymore. And well,
2: good for you.
0: Yes, it's it's an amazing update. So that's what I have uh, on a very happy note.
1: So in tune then. Uh... We'll probably see some things rolling out today since it's Friday, but we had the um, May release on the week of May 11th, and they always release it as a week since it's rollout out on over four days, uh, the service updates. But the May ele- week of May 11th, we got a huge update to Intune as well, and I just want to point out three really cool things. The first one is, are you aware of the Azure AD My Apps portal? Yes. Yeah, so where you can publish your um, Azure AD integrated apps. Microsoft is now looking into a unified delivery and adding those apps to the company portal instead so that you shouldn't be forced to go into a separate web page to find it, you should get them in the company portal regardless if you are Intune enrolled or not. And the same applies to your office web apps that you should be able to see them in the company portal too. So that's really bringing it all together and you shouldn't really care about how you get your app as long as you have the company portal. And I'm guessing that we'll see other things getting into the company portal over time as well from various different app sources. The other cool thing is that the endpoint manager portal which now will be replacing the intune node in azure in the azure portal from october uh, have been completed with the endpoint security content and node there and it's been added also a couple of new features for especially bitlocker so it's your one-stop shop for anything related to endpoint security regardless of which endpoint you actually are using which is super cool and really makes it easy to find what you're looking for. So is that available already today? Yeah, it is. It is. Uh, And the last thing is that we have new protected apps. So app protection policies, I don't know if you have implemented that for for your organizations, the MAM part of Intune, but now new apps have been added that we can protect and apply these policies to. And I would say that the most notable one are the uh, Microsoft Whiteboard app, two ServiceNow apps, as well as Medio. So Medio is a way to book and schedule meetings, book resources and such, and a bunch of other uh, apps in addition. So that's something you definitely should look into and see if your organization is using any one of these and then add them to your app protection policies. That sounds
0: awesome. We are, well, we did run out of time a bit back. This will be a slightly longer episode. But we thank you so much for listening to Knee Deep in Tech. And if you have any feedback, questions, or like to be part of an episode, don't hesitate to reach out either on social media or via email at podcast at kneedeepintech.com. We'll be back next week. And meanwhile, take care. Bye. Bye. Bye now.